Good morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. And yes, that wish you made over the weekend did come true because Batya Angar Sargan is my wonderful co-host today. Not in studio, sadly, but uh, from your home studio, I guess, in New York. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Brooklyn, New York, representing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And we do have a great show planned for today. Reasons Liz Wolf will be here to discuss New York's new gun laws. And we'll take a look at Kamala Harris's response to some tough questions regarding Roe with our rising panel. But first, over the weekend, social media went into a frenzy after Tesla CEO Elon Musk pulled out of his $44 billion Twitter deal, a first time pulling out for him. Joke, less than three months after reaching a deal to acquire Twitter. Stocks for the social media giant took a dip. Following the news, however, Tesla reportedly climbed uh, more than 2%. Bloomberg reported Sunday that a New York law firm is representing Twitter to take on Musk in court and will file its lawsuit in Delaware next week. Right. And now Musk reportedly abandoned the deal because Twitter failed to provide accurate and comprehensive information on fake or spam accounts. And in traditional Musk fashion, he tweeted a meme of the situation that reads the following. They say I couldn't buy Twitter. Then they wouldn't disclose bot info. Now they want to force me to buy Twitter in court. Now they have to disclose bot info in court. So, Robbie, what what is your take on this? I don't know. There's a lot of different, uh, I think there's a lot of potential takeaways. You know, maybe Elon, um, I, well, okay. So I think the conservative world or, or people who thought, you know, Elon Musk was going to be the white knight in this situation, was going to like, you know, rescue Twitter from its bad policy, <laughs> rescue us from it, I guess, in some sense, rescue um, political and social dialogue of consequence from the vice grip of of censorship and unpleasantness that is Twitter um, was a foolish hope. Maybe that's maybe I also share that hope to some degree. So I guess uh, I guess that's what you get for kind of trusting in someone who does, you know, get interested in different projects. Right. And then get less interested in them. Um, or, you know, you can take at face value the idea what he's saying that he was interested in buying this. But then it turned out that, you know, it's this house of cards where, uh, there are m many more fake accounts or inactive accounts than Twitter was initially letting on, although I think d we kind of already understood that, right? Why, why did Elon jump headfirst in this thing if he didn't know something that I think most people paying even se somewhat close attention to Twitter know to be the case, which is that it's way more than, than what they say, the number of, of fake accounts. But, you know, what do you think? Well, I believe that on this very show, I actually predicted that he was not going to buy it and that this was a great distraction from, you know, the problems at Tesla. I can't believe I actually was right about that. I'm never right about anything, but I was right about that. And I'm that's right. <laughs> we 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 doth our cap to you. Yeah, I think this was a big distraction. And I don't think he ever had any intention of buying Twitter. I think that this was a really good ruse for him to unload a lot of Tesla stock at a time when Tesla stock was, you know, in free fall. And I think it was genius. I mean, it was totally brilliant. And to me, this bot thing, 
he found a thing that would be very hard, I think, to prove one way or the other. I mean, it was so clever, right? They struggle to actually come up with an accurate number. And so he can go to court and say, look, they're lying about what the number is because it's something that's so hard to falsify. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if my following is just too small on Twitter. My sense is that the number of bots in my mentions is about 5%. Most of the people trolling me are big name blue checks or people <laughs> who I have like been friends with or had in my home for dinner. It's like people who get mad at you in social situations. Like I just, my experience of Twitter is not that I'm getting bombarded by bots, but that I'm getting bombarded by angry progressives and leftists. Yeah. So I would say like, just from my personal experience, I, I think I, it's much more in the range of the Twitter numbers than the Elon Musk numbers. But again, this is just anecdotal. Yeah. I, I, too, have been uh, bombarded with some <laughs> criticism from uh, some kind of woke blue check people um, since the show last week. So that's been uh, that's been fun. Meanwhile, former President Trump blasted Elon as another BS artist after Elon revealed he first voted for Republican in Texas, Myra Flores, though Trump said that Elon had told Trump he voted for him. Which, you know, who knows? But you, you do, it's kind of a fair criticism to, to call him a BS artist in the wake of, I mean, not the did I vote for you thing, which is kind of stupid, but in the wake of, of the Twitter thing, which he seemed committed to and is now going to, you know, pay up to a billion dollars or something to get out of. Uh, that, that is a kind of, you know, I, he can do it, whatever. I don't, I don't, but I, it will be interesting to see if this causes some of his uh, the uh, sort of conservative fan base that he's acquired, I think, in the last few weeks and months to, uh, to look elsewhere. Because there was a moment where he was becoming the main character. My, my theory is that the two teams always need their main protagonist. And for so long, the red team's protagonist was Trump. And Trump is starting to, the, the fever is finally breaking. Trump is fading a little bit into mm -hmm. the background. So there needs to be a new character. Uh, maybe that's just another political figure. Maybe that's just Ron DeSantis. But for a little while, it was looking like Elon Musk was getting all of this attention and was increasingly becoming a, a, a red-coded figure, which is interesting to watch someone in real time who's not perfectly sorted into one team or the other get sorted because that's like what the system has to do. It has to process you as a red person or a blue person. But uh, but I, I don't know if that's that process might not continue. So first of all, that clip of Trump uh, calling him a BS artist is so funny, you know, because it's so you immediately become a 10 year old thinking like takes one to know one, you know, <laughs> who is a better authority on who is a BS artist than Donald Trump, right? It's a great clip. Um, I, I, I think what you just said is so interesting because it's exactly my take, but um, from the other side. So to me, the reason that Musk was doing all this was because, you know, he realized he needed a home on the right. And so he very cleverly thought, well, what is the thing conservatives are most exercised about? And it's being censored on Twitter, which is they have a total right to be exercised about that. It, it, they are being censored on Twitter. It is terrible. It is awful for the public sphere. It's it's really, really, really shameful how that happens. They're totally right to be upset about that. But I think that he thought to himself, I need to make myself a home on the right. Things are not going great at Tesla. You know, he, you know, Tesla, of course, electric cars, right? You know, they're very affiliated with the left. How do 
I make myself a nice little nest on the right? I go and I tell them I'm going to champion your free speech rights on Twitter. And so he made this whole elaborate ruse to distract from things going poorly at Tesla and became, he was right, he became immediately a champion for the right, despite the fact that this is a man who is completely in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party. And the right today is supposed to be the side that's hawkish on China. I mean, so that was the, 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 that was actually very hard for me to um, stomach, like seeing all of these conservatives who are supposed to be the kind of the front line on, you know, fighting back against China, championing this person who's the biggest cheerleader for the Chinese Communist Party in the West, essentially. Um, but, you know, we'll see what happens now, now that this is sort of coming to a head. Yeah, and that was the most serious concern I, about Elon was the the possibility that there would be some kind of a different kind of censorship on Twitter in order to appease China, you know, something that, you know, we see even with even with companies that aren't explicitly setting out to do that, it gets very it gets very tricky. You know, Google has had this struggle. Well, we, Google Google doesn't want to censor Google, but the Chinese government says, well, you have to if you're going to operate here. And then they have this weird, even from like the standpoint of what's better for, for a free society, I think it can be a hard call. Like, well, do we just pull out entirely, say no negotiating with authoritarian governments? Do we say, well, it's probably better even for the oppressed people of the, of the country to have even the, the censored access might be better. I think those end up being Dif- uh, difficult calls even before you bring in then, well, what is the company going to do because it's in its its best interest. But uh, but yes, Elon will not be uh, not be, be Twitter's savior, but uh, we'll have to we'll have to keep paying attention to the legal battle, I suppose. We'll find out if, if uh, Twitter's able to uh, to claim it's a billion dollars or however much it is, which I assume they probably will be or I, I don't know. We have no idea at this point. Right, but what's a billion dollars to Elon Musk yeah, after how much he saved from selling off all of that Tesla stock, right? Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. good point. Well, you were absolutely uh, right about this one, so uh, we're very happy to have your very uh, perceptive judgment all day, and we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, last week, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was dining at Morton's Steakhouse in Washington, D.C., one of my favorite restaurants. Now, according to Politico, pro-choice protesters showed up to the establishment and demanded that the manager eject Kavanaugh and ultimately forced the conservative justice to exit through a back door. Now, this came after progressive activist groups shut down D.C., tweeted out the tip that Kavanaugh had been spotted at the restaurant. The incident didn't attract very much notice until AOC tweeted about it on Friday. Poor guy, she tweeted sarcastically. He left before his souffle because he decided half the country should risk death. They have an ectopic pregnancy within the wrong state lines. It's all very unfair to him. The least they could do is let him eat cake. Now, that last line was a reference to Marie Antoinette, the stereotypical out-of-touch French royal. So remember, though, that Marie Antoinette was eventually captured, subjected to a show trial, and murdered by far-left activists after they seized control of the French government. So maybe AOC should watch it with that metaphor? But in any case, AOC's suggestion that the demise of Roe v. Wade means doctors can't deal with ectopic pregnancies, which is a pregnancy that threatens the life of the mother, well, that's just false. All of the restrictive abortion laws currently being enacted in the U.S. include carve-outs in the case that the abortion is medically necessary to save the life of the mother. Set that aside for a moment. In a follow-up tweet, AOC accused Republicans of pearl-clutching over the protesters who were targeting conservative Supreme Court justices. 
quote, Republicans send people to protest me all the time, sometimes drunk and belligerent, wrote AOC. Nobody cares about it unless it's a Republican in a restaurant. Can someone please explain the obsession? Because I don't get it. Um, I, I don't agree that no one cares if that happens to AOC. And in fact, if she is being confronted in restaurants or having people show up to her home who are drunk and belligerent, uh, that's wrong and should be condemned and probably is being condemned by everyone in the mainstream media. In fact, I agree with her that some of the conservative criticism she receives borders on obsession and, frankly, harassment. Now, we have to be careful here because it's the public's right to hold political figures accountable and to engage in First Amendment-protected protests even in the vicinity of their homes. But political figures should not fear for their safety, and that goes whether they are leftist Democrats or hard-right Republicans. Right now, it's progressive pro-choice protesters who need to internalize that lesson. Shut Down DC, the group that initially tweeted out Kavanaugh's location, tweeted in response to the Morton's incident, quote, DC service industry workers, if you see Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, or Roberts, DM us with the details. We'll Venmo you $50 for a confirmed sighting and $200 if they're still there 30 minutes after your message. That tweet didn't call for harassment or intimidation or violence, but it's still a little too similar for my taste to putting a bounty on a public figure. Now, Morton's put out the following statement after the Kavanaugh incident. So this is from Morton's The Steakhouse. Honorable Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh and all of our other patrons at the restaurant were unduly harassed by unruly pa uh, protesters while eating dinner at our Morton's restaurant. Politics, regardless of your side or view, should not trample the freedom at play of the right to congregate and eat dinner. There is a time and a place for everything. Disturbing the dinner of all of our customers was an act of selfishness and void of decency. In response, some pro-choice protesters have been flooding Morton's with fake reservations. Scott Crane, COO of Morton, sent the following memo to employees. Currently, we are experiencing a massive wave trending at number two on social media. Negative response to our comments yesterday, as well as being bombarded at the local level with phone calls and fake reservations on OpenTable. I am making you aware of this because there's a good chance that your restaurant will also potentially have some people reaching out for comment and or making bogus reservations over the next few days. As I stated yesterday, our comment is always no comment. We don't respond. We don't retweet. We don't post on Instagram or Facebook. We don't do anything. We do not insert our political beliefs at any time, not with an employee, not with a fellow manager, most certainly not with a guest. I'd like to note that punishing Mortons for threatening a customer with decency does not in any way accomplish something positive for the pro-choice cause all these activists are doing is making life a little more difficult for Morton staff, managers, and yes, the waiters, the working class people. Do Democrats really wonder why they're losing touch with these voters when their strategy is to pester everyone at all times, unless you're 100% committed to progressive cultural values? Most normal people agree that there is a time and place for politics, but occasionally we should be able to disconnect and turn it off. It's healthier that way given the intense partisan political disagreements in this country, for people to be able to work and dine and live their lives in private with constant political animus. Yes, I understand there's a lot at stake, but if you support abortion rights, the Supreme Court is not really your target. The Dobbs decision simply returned the issue to legislators at the national and state level. If you think abortion laws should be looser than they are or stricter than they are, you have to mobilize a coalition and get people elected who support that view. Look at Glenn Youngkin, a moderate Republican who won the gubernatorial race in Virginia with a mandate to govern as a moderate Republican and is seeking to implement a 15-week abortion ban. 
That policy is actually more permissive of abortion than what the law is in France, where a 14-week abortion ban is in effect. Progressives often say that the U.S. should be more like Europe, but not like this, I guess. <laughs> so, Bacha, I, I wonder what you uh, think about this. Um, uh, probably you are also struck by the, uh, the call on you know, working people, on waiters, on staff to be not only doing their jobs, but to be vigilant in case a Supreme Court justice shows up. They're supposed to drop everything and report this to the liberal activist, <laughs> activist authorities who will do what? I guess they'll just harass and annoy people. Like, is this a good strategy? Don't the, the, the left, the activist left, and obviously there are crazy activists on the right who are causing all sorts of mayhem uh, frequently, so I'm not you know, trying to leave them out, but people just, I think most normal people get so tired of this and, and, and don't think that it is good in modern life to have people, even, even important political people who, yes, there should be accountability and yes, you should be able to protest them. I, I think even in the vicinity of their homes, I do, I'm not sure, I don't feel strongly about a lot of these laws trying to criminalize that either, but just that, come on, like in the restaurant, like there's not, it's not the right time and place for this kind of stuff. So I think um, what you're, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think what you're making is a moral case and not a legal case. Absolutely. And, and, and in that sense, I totally agree with you. But I think it's very important to separate those things out. From a moral point of view, I agree with you. There's something really distasteful about this. Justices are not supposed to be influenced by pressure from the public, unlike elected officials, right? right? They have lifetime appointments. They're meant to be impartial and only do one thing, which is decide whether or not something is constitutional. So this is just punishment for having a different view than these activists do, right? And there's something very distasteful about them wanting to, this is not activism because it has no goal in mind, right? The goal is only to punish the justice for having decided something against their political preferences. In that sense, it's distasteful. I totally agree with you politically. It's 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 crazy, right? <laughs> like it's so, it seems almost, if, if they were all plants by Republicans, they couldn't have done a better job, right? Of alienating mm -hmm. average Americans from the position they want, right? Right. But at the same time, I think it's very important to stress that from a legal point of view, these people are entitled to have their kind of gross um, opinions and they are entitled to stand in the street and make those opinions heard. And um, so, I, I, you know, that is what makes America great, I think, is that, you know, the majority of Americans can be like, God, that's so gross. But also because of our amazing Constitution that doesn't have the word abortion in it, this is their mm -hmm. right to do that, to stand in the street and do that. Yep, absolutely. And I, I've tried to be clear on this show that, you know, the various laws have been proposed in some places to, you know, criminalize protesting near the Supreme Court justices. Yeah, I, I, that's not I, that's not going to stand up. But then eventually, the Supreme Court would say that's not constitutional <laughs> would, be the, would be the irony, because we have a very pro free speech, pro free expression um, Supreme Court right now, which it's a, a good thing that First Amendment jurisprudence has gotten even more robust. Um, so that you know, that's not what we want to see. If they need, if they need security, fine. You know, the bill to give them more security. We were debating that a little bit on the show, but I think there's not really much to debate there. Whatever the appropriate security they need, right? That's fine. But uh, but it, it is, and I, I, you hit on something there that I think is key. And it, I know the, the justices are doing a lot of what appears to be legislative work. Um, be in, in part because the legislature has just kind of forfeited its responsibility to engage in the practice of making legislation, <laughs> but they so are healthy. still they are still judges. They are mm -hmm. ruling on uh, legal matters in a way akin to, 
you know, how it would be wrong to send, you know, like thugs to go into intimidate the judge at like a mobster's trial, right? It's not exactly like that, but it is a little bit different than, you know, what AOC is saying. I get, you know, harassed. And I, I don't think she should be harassed. I, in, in fact, I think a lot of that obsession with AOC is very unhealthy. Uh, but it, it, I, I actually, there's probably a, a greater, it's okay to challenge legislators uh, in public or than uh, morally, just from the moral standpoint. Again, not from the legal standpoint, because that's pretty clear in both cases. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, sort of standing outside a restaurant is very different than appearing outside somebody's private residence where their family lives. So I, I think that those are also morally and, and legally different um, because standing in the public sphere, in the public space when somebody has gone out into public is very different than coming to their home where their children are and, um, you right. know, protesting outside their home, especially because we know that Justice Kavanaugh did get that um, death threat. So those are very different as well, right. I think. Right, and he, right, and he had that, uh, right, he had a, a person visit his home with some yes, intention to yeah. do harm. So we do have to yeah. take this stuff seriously. Uh, but I'm looking forward to what's on your radar, Bacha, coming up next. Bacha, I can't wait to hear what's on your radar. Well, if you spend any time on social media, reading the New York Post or watching Fox News, you know about the 61-year-old bodega clerk who defended himself from an assault by killing his attacker. On July 1st, Jose Alba, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic who's lived in the U.S. for 35 years, was working in a Harlem bodega when a woman tried to pay for a bag of chips for her daughter with an EBT card. Alba ran her card, but it was declined, so he ran it again and again. Finally, Alba took the bag of chips away from the little girl. Her enraged mother shouted at Alba that she was going to bring her boyfriend to the store and her boyfriend was going to F you up. She used the actual word, which is exactly what happened. The woman's boyfriend was a 35-year-old career criminal named Austin Simon, who was out on parole for assaulting a police officer, the latest in a long list of assaults. Simon entered the store and immediately began to yell at Alba, what's up with you? What is wrong with you? Including profanities. I don't want a problem, Papa, Alba said, showing Simon the receipt from the decline transaction and doing his best to de-escalate the situation. But Simon didn't listen. He stepped behind the counter and got right up in Alba's face. Simon then proceeded to do exactly what his girlfriend had promised he would do. He effed Alba up. Simon shoved Alba hard enough that Alba, a 61-year-old, nearly half Simon's size, fell back into the wall. In the video of the altercation, a defeated look passes over Alba's face as Simon looms over him, shouting and gesticulating. Simon then grabs Alba by the scruff and tries to shove him out of the booth, demanding that he come apologize to the girl, according to the criminal complaint. Alba tries to pull away, and Alba and Simon get into an altercation. Being assaulted by a man half his age and twice his size, Alba grabs a knife and stabs Simon five times. Simon was later pronounced dead. Meanwhile, Alba was stabbed four times by Simon's girlfriend who had a knife in her purse, twice in each arm. Every human life is infinitely precious, so every death is a tragedy. But it's hard to imagine a clearer case of self-defense. Alba had already been stabbed four times by a woman who had vowed to bring her boyfriend to F him up. The bodega clerk was no physical match for his assailant. That's clear from the video. 
Alba also has no criminal record and found himself locked in a tiny space with a man who spent his life getting what he wanted with his fists. Exactly how much effing up was Alba supposed to submit to before defending himself in the only way he could? Alba truly had no other option, that much is clear. He even did try to get away, which New York state law mandates for a legal case of self-defense. Simon and his girlfriend, on the other hand, had many off-ramps from this altercation. Why didn't Simon's girlfriend ask Simon for the money for the chips instead of asking him to humiliate and assault a bodega worker just doing his job? Why did Simon think that not letting his girlfriend have free food from an establishment Alba didn't even own was an insult worthy of assault? Why was asking for money in exchange for goods considered an assault at all? An insult at all. You'd be hard pressed to find a better textbook case of self-defense. And yet somehow, appallingly, when the NYPD arrived on the scene, they arrested Alba and carted him off to Rikers Island. Manhattan's progressive district attorney, Alvin Bragg, who ran on a platform of decarceration and initially vowed not to prosecute illegal weapons charges, asked that Alba be held on $500,000 in bail. A judge lowered that to $250,000 and then to $50,000, but only after a huge public outcry. Alba is now out on bond, but not before he spent almost a week in, in Rikers where his knife wounds got infected. And not before GoFundMe canceled an appeal by the family to raise money for Alba. A Give, Send, Go campaign has raised nearly $80,000. Meanwhile, Simon's girlfriend has not been charged for stabbing the bodega clerk. It's outrageous. The charges against Alba are totally unjustified. Every person has the right to defend his or her life. And it's doubly outrageous given the backdrop of Bragg's soft on crime approach more generally. As the New York Post put it in an editorial, get caught with an illegal gun, get released without bail, shove an elderly person to the ground, attack someone because they are Asian, a slap on the wrist. Shoplift again and again and again, nothing but defend yourself in your place of business from a man who attacks you and Bragg sends you to Rikers. It's not enough that progressive prosecutors across the country have been letting career criminals roam the streets unimpeded. If you, the victim, don't submit to their attack, you will go to jail. It's appalling. New York's progressive justice system is denying Alba the most basic of human rights, the right to defend your own life. How did this happen? How did we get here? How are they getting away with this? There's a clue in the coverage this tragic episode received from the progressive press, or rather didn't receive. WNYC, New York's public radio station, has nothing on their website about the stabbing, nor about the massive public outcry that led to the reduced bail. But here is how Gothamist covered it. A Harlem bodega worker was arrested Saturday in connection to the fatal stabbing of a customer, police said. 51-year-old Jose Alba was charged with murder and criminal possession of a weapon, according to the NYPD. Police said Alba stabbed 37-year-old Austin Simon twice inside the Blue Moon convenience store on Broadway near 139th Street, following a dispute on Friday night about store merchandise. Simon was taken to Harlem Hospital, where he was pronounced dead, authorities said. Notice how the story omits the fact that Simon was assaulting Alba when Alba stabbed him or the fact that Alba was stabbed by Simon's girlfriend. I suppose it is technically true that the episode followed a dispute about store merchandise, but like omitting Simon's culpability, it gives rather the wrong impression. 
Maybe Gotham has got it wrong because it was early in the investigation, but there appears to be no follow-up story correcting this one and nothing about the public outcry. Meanwhile, it took almost a week for the New York Times to cover the story, and what they finally came up with was telling. The headline of the story is about Mayor Adams, of all things. Adams shows support for man charged in bodega killing that caused outcry. Not only does the headline focus on Mayor Adams as if somehow this was the most important part of the story, but it very cleverly obscures who the outcry is on behalf of, making it sound like the outcry was in response to the killing rather than in response to the unjust arrest of the person who killed Simon. Now consider how the New York Times tells the story of what happened that fateful night in July. A 35-year-old man, Austin Simon, went behind the counter to confront a bodega employee, demanding an apology after the card was declined and the worker grabbed the chips from the hands of the 10-year-old daughter of Mr. Simon's girlfriend. Mr. Simon, who was unarmed, pushed the worker backward, and in the ensuing scuffle, the worker fatally stabbed him. So there's nothing here that isn't true. But look how hard the New York Times is working already in its narration of the events to cast Simon and his girlfriend, the clear aggressors, as the victims of the altercation. Simon goes to confront Alba rather than to assault him. He confronts him for having grabbed the chips from the hands of the 10-year-old daughter rather than for refusing to let someone walk out of a store he didn't own with merchandise they refused to pay for. And of course, the Times makes sure to point out that Simon was unarmed. Simon was orphaned at seven after his mother died, the Times informs us. And rather than reaching out to Alba's family, the Times reporter reached out to Simon's. They're just trying to paint this picture of this young black man who was actually redeeming his life as someone who was just a criminal, Simon's cousin said. Simon died trying to protect somebody he cared about. Hey, who are you going to believe? The New York Times or your lying eyes? As for how Alba's family felt about their dad being incarcerated for refusing for, to submit to a possibly fatal beating and stabbing, the Times leaves that to your imagination. What is happening here? What could possibly make the New York Times and NPR-affiliated Gothamist first ignore and then so desperately misconstrue this episode so you would be sure to sympathize more with the aggressor than the person he planned to F up? Why do they have so much more compassion for the criminal than for his victim? It's all about who their audience is. NPR and the New York Times have among the highest income readerships in all of news media. And it's these same affluent, overeducated, progressive Manhattanites who voted in Alvin Bragg, a DA whose progressive policies make them feel so much more virtuous than their neighbors, the slightly less leftist liberals but end up releasing criminals onto the streets to terrorize poor and working class people of color. Needless to say, low income and working class communities of color want the kind of safe streets that affluent white progressives take for granted. They wanna be protected from criminals and they don't feel the kind of sympathy for people victimizing them that progressive media manufactures for its readers. There was a great example of this the day Alba's story went viral. The word Amiri started trending on Twitter in reference to the t-shirt Simon was wearing when he attacked Alba, which had the luxury brand named emblazoned on the back. Unlike the New York Times though, black Twitter was not very sympathetic to Simon, dragging him in viral tweet after viral tweet for wearing a luxury brand t-shirt while his girlfriend didn't have money for chips and for assaulting a bodega clerk for doing his job. 
No doubt progressives genuinely believe it's important to have compassion for people like Simon who lost their mothers at seven and as a result have spent their lives beating up girlfriends and cops. It is important to have compassion for all living souls. But this compassion becomes a sickness when it means you have to cast a 60-year-old as a murderer for refusing to be effed up by such a man. It becomes a sickness when you have more compassion for criminals than for their victims. Affluent progressives, the target audience of the New York Times, cheered Alvin Bragg's vow not to prosecute illegal gun charges while braying day in and day out about gun violence. These folks have replaced a worldview based on right versus wrong with a worldview based on powerful versus powerless. And then they superimposed a racial binary onto that. That's how you end up with a media desperate to cast Simon as the victim of the encounter. It's horrifying and it's dangerous. Talk to any cop these days and they will tell you why violent crime is on the rise. Criminals aren't scared of them anymore. They know that progressive prosecutors have their backs. They know that they can get away with stuff they didn't used to be able to. It's not just in progressive cities. Violent crime is on the rise across the nation, in rural America too. In poll after poll after poll, violent crime is one of the top two concerns Americans have right after inflation. In fact, the only people who don't seem to be suffering from the rise in violent crime are the people with those signs on their lawns. In this house, we believe in defunding the police. It's time for a reality check. We've got to once again be a nation governed by the rule of law. Our neighbors, our fellow New Yorkers, especially those with less than us, they really need it. The voice of the blood of our brothers is crying out to us from the ground. We must heed that call. Now, Robbie, I know that you were also upset by this story. Mm -hmm. uh, what was your take on all of this? Yeah, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was almost going to talk about this uh, for my radar, but it, you, you being the New Yorker, um, you have more expertise here. But yeah, I, it is a crime to prosecute this man. He was defending himself. And look, if you start a fight with some an unfair fight, this, this person initiated, Simon initiated this fight had every opportunity to, to not continue it, was given that opportunity, and then did, you know what, the saying is, F around, find out. That, this is an example of that. You start a fight <laughs> with someone under this circumstance, sorry. That was your choice. It was not, it was not Alba's choice. And I, 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 I honestly struggle th that anyone could have a different reaction. And most people have had the reaction you've had and that I've had on social media. It's overwhelming. Most people understand that there was, this was wrong. You can't do that. If you do that, guess what? You can get hurt and even die, which is sad. We wish it hadn't happened, but that was solely on the assailant to determine whether that was going to happen or not. And no, our our. our our cashiers, our bodega workers, our, our working class people, our immigrants should not be subjected to harassment and violence. And, and to, ha to have a society where, where defending yourself is criminalized, no. You, there is no moral expectation that you, that you have to be beaten up and do nothing about it. I reject that. If that is the law, the law should be changed. It's wrong. It, it, is, it is immoral to have a society where people must endure physical violence and not defend themselves or they'll be punished for doing so. It's just the most clear violation of someone's rights you could possibly have. 
Yeah, and I think that the vast gulf separating how black New Yorkers are talking about this mm -hmm. from how like the New York Times is talking about it is really important to point out. I, I was talking to one of my best friends yesterday and she grew up in Harlem and she was telling me how the bodega was like a part of the family. You know what I mean? It was like it was like church. It was a place where you would go, you would talk to people and the bodega owner, the bodega clerk was somebody that you regularly interacted with and were very grateful that he was in your neighborhood and he was taking care of people. And the idea that somebody would just decide that it was that their right to go in and assault someone like that and that he should have to take it. It's just like so horrifying and so contrary to, you know, what we think about when we think about the rule of law, when we think about, you know, you know, and, and it's so funny because you can so easily imagine a world in which progressives looked at, you know, one man was just so much obviously bigger than the other, had so much more physical force at his disposal and said, look, you know, this, you know, Alba, right, this, this immigrant, right, he's working so mm -hmm. hard just trying to make Bai such a small guy, you know, that they would have sympathized with him. And so that that's why I think that there's a bigger story here about what this says about the progressive mindset right now. Uh, right. The the urge, the utterly nonsensical urge to to not prosecute or not keep in prison people who are a danger to society, people with re repeated clashes mm -hmm. with the law. We're going to let them out, but this person should spend a week in Rikers. Just despicable. Well, thank you so much, Bacha, for telling us more about that. Expertly handled. And we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. After Roe was overturned, many Americans asked why the Democrats had failed to codify Roe into law. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris answered the question over the weekend on CBS. Let's take a look. When you look back, did Democrats fail past Democratic presidents, congressional leaders to not codify Roe v. Wade over the past five decades? I think that, to be very honest with you, I, I do believe that we should have rightly believed, but we certainly believe that certain issues are just settled. Certain issues are just settled. Clearly we're not. No, that's right. And that's why I do believe that we are living sadly, in um, real unsettled times. <laughs> On the same day of that terrible interview, a Twitter user uh, with the, the handle Musk Till Dawn tweeted, today is my last day as the guy who spins Kamala Harris around 25 times before pushing her into the room for her interviews. It has been an incredible opportunity, and I'm sad to leave it. Uh, that's obviously a joke and one I thought was funny because I can't stop laughing at it. Political commentator Alaimi Alurin and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing, Adam Coleman, are now here with us to discuss. Welcome to you both. Morning. Thank you. So, Alaimi, are we being fa unfair to Kamala here? Did you think that joke was funny? I did. Uh, I mean, look, she, she doesn't give a coherent answer at all to that question. I can't even... We can't even attack her answer because it's just a nothing answer. And this is becoming so characteristic of how she responds to questions. What do you think? Yeah, this, this particular one is not an unfair criticism of, of Kamala. One, she, she didn't answer the question. But two, it's just a bad answer. They obviously failed. You concede the failure. I'm not going to put the entire last 50 years on, on you or Joe Biden's back in specific Kamala. But obviously, they failed. And to say, you know, we believed we were living in settled time. 
that's just completely untrue. Maybe if you were a lay person, a regular person who's not uh, engaged in the political landscape, maybe you would have thought the right to abortion was settled. But people have been saying repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly to them that this is coming. A case doesn't just appear in front of the Supreme Court. It had to go. It had to go all the way up. We've seen the Republican Party is meant to challenge this all along, and the Democrats consciously know that because Obama promised in his term that it would be codified, did not. So this is just something that they chose not to do, and they very much so are complicit in the place that we're at now. And for whatever reason, they're doing everything they can to avoid that level of accountability. But it's obviously a failure on their part. Mm. Adam, you, you wrote an awesome piece for us at Newsweek called uh, Kamala Harris is a diversity hire. I'm wondering, you know, if you feel that you've been sort of vindicated uh, in making that argument uh, when she makes uh, gaffes like this. Well, yeah, I mean, the point of me saying that she's a diversity hire has more to do with Joe Biden arbitrarily selecting someone based off of their skin color and their sex. You know, before he selected Kamala Harris, he basically said, I'm looking for a black female, point blank. That means that his first initiatives is to look at someone's physical characteristics, uh, which, you know, for a position of, of power, or at least somewhat power as a vice president, uh, shouldn't be the first thing that you're looking for. Um, but I think also she was selected because she plays the game well, um, as far as following along with the establishment once. Um, but the problem is that she's not a leader. Um, you know, what she said as far as we thought this was codified is obviously nonsense. You know, as long as I've been in politics, uh, Democrats have been threatening that Republicans want to reverse Roe v. Wade, meaning that they thought it was possible to do, and they never had the initiative to codify it in law. So they, I think, I think it's more likely that they always wanted this to be some sort of wedge issue, something they can campaign on, uh, something that they could use to weaponize against the right. Um, but here we are in a post-Roe v. Wade uh, society. Well, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, responded to questions about a recent tweet actually from his husband uh, addressing the Kavanaugh protests that I discussed in my radar. Let's take a look at his answer. Your husband tweeted after uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh left a Washington restaurant due to protesters. The tweet reads, sounds like he just wanted some privacy to make his own dining decisions. Is that appropriate, sir? Look, when uh, public officials go into public life, we, we should expect two things. One, uh, you should always be free from violence, harassment, and intimidation. And two, you're never going to be free from criticism or peaceful protest, people exercising their First Amendment rights. Okay. And that's what happened in this case. Remember, the justice never even came into contact with these protesters, uh, reportedly didn't see or hear them. And these protesters are upset because a right, an important right, that the majority of Americans support was taken away. So and after that interview, the host of the No Lie podcast, Brian Cohen, tweeted, Pete Buttigieg is just too good at this. And well, I mean, I'm wondering, like, what you make of that, you know, the, it, we are in this moment where it seems like liberals, Democrats are casting about for replacements for Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, you know, that they really don't see them as the future of the party. What do you make of all of that talk? Well, I don't think they're the future of the party. I was never, I was never somebody that was particularly uh, hyped for them in the first place. I think Biden is a establishment moderate, and I think 
Uh, they insisted that he was the future because I think the Democratic Party itself is more committed to a moderate centrist world than their voters are. So they've pushed that and that's why we're here and it is what it is. As far as Buttigieg and his comments, I think he answered the question absolutely excellently. I think you hear a lot, the right loves to weaponize and talk about the right to free speech whenever it talks, whenever they want to talk about every hateful thing that they want to do, what they want to say. But when it comes to them being criticized or protests, which are just as intrinsic to our right to free speech as anything can be, Supreme Court has decided on this. There's nothing wrong uh, uh, with protests. All of a sudden, they don't they don't recognize it. Oh, the left has gone too far. No, there's no reason why. First of all, if a constitutional right, people are allowed to protest, especially peacefully. Second of all, if a Supreme Court justice is going to be making decisions as widespread as overturning Roe, they should expect uh, backlash. And especially when it comes to the right to privacy, which again is what Roe was anchored in. If if Kavanaugh does not respect the right to privacy in that form and how it impacts uh, the lives of women all over this nation, there's no reason why uh, he should be entitled to some extra level of privacy no one else is that forbids him from protest. So I think Buttigieg did an amazing job answering that question. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, and I, I thought the underlying tweet, really, from Chasen Buttigieg was perfectly inoffensive. Um, right. Honestly, it was fine. I, I don't see why there was even controversy over it, really. Whether it, Pete's response, I guess, then was also fine. It was a weird question in the first mm-hmm. place because I didn't really see what was wrong with the, with the tweet. But, uh, you know, Adam, what do you think? It, so it's interesting to see this. I don't know exactly who this the what is it the no lie uh, actually I've seen I've seen his tweets before and found them to be <laughs> not great tweets in general so I don't know how accurate this kind of no lie framing is for whatever that person has going on but uh, clearly some rallying behind Buttigieg I guess although at a time where you know he's perceived I think correctly to be presiding over just like a disastrous time at the Department of Transportation air travel a complete and total wreck right now. Uh, you know, does is Mayor Pete having some kind of future beyond this, or is being set up to have a future given the disappointment that some in, in the Democratic Party you think have with uh, Biden and Harris? Yeah, I, I think there is this uh, huge desire to want to uplift Pete because, admittingly, he is competent, he's intelligent, and he's uh, on the younger side, much much more so than uh, someone like Joe Biden. Uh, but the problem is that I don't think he's very likable. Um, I think that's why he didn't go as far as many other people. Um, but the thing is, he's far more competent than Kamala Harris or even Joe Biden. Um, you know, so this isn't necessarily a knock on him as far as what he could be, uh, you know, as a politician or even leadership. Uh, it's more so that whether we like it or not, when people go out and vote, they vote for people that they can relate to mm-hmm. and that they like. Um, and I don't. I don't think that is Pete Buttigieg. That's just my gut feeling to him. Mm, yeah, I know there's a lot you know, of dislike. Uh, go, go ahead, Batya. Oh, I was gonna. I was just gonna ask Goliami. Like, uh, returning to the first point, why do you think that the Democrats never codified Roe v. Wade when they had the chance as law? I'm really interested in that question, actually. If, if I'm honest, I think they're not. I don't think they're as interested in it. I think very often we conflate the will of the Democratic voter base with the Democratic Party, and that's just not the case. If you look at Joe Biden, Joe Biden is our president, right? The head of this now, you would assume, because Democrats are so heavily in favor of codifying Roe and the right to abortion, that you know the president of our party is. If you look at his entire track record from the time Roe was passed to now, he's been against abortion uh, pretty steadily. You know, the the change now only occurs in rhetoric because now that's where the party has to be. That's where uh, the country is. But I think what will happen, what you'll see is 
a lot of these Democrats are establishment moderates who were not that uh, keen on the right to abortion in the first place. And when they didn't have to go out of their way to do something about it, they wouldn't because it wasn't it wasn't in their their personal interest card. Now you see the the country is upset, so they have to speak. Uh, they have to speak to what we want. They have to say, oh, we want to codify the right to abortion, go out and vote uh, the right to abortion. But if you really think about it, just the other day, um, before when when we were just dealing with the leaked opinion, before it was even official that Roe was going to be overturned, the Democrats got on. They said, okay, uh, the right to abortion is being threatened. If you want us to be able to codify a row, you need to go ahead and vote, 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 vote for the midterms. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. they were still backing uh, anti-choice um, um, politicians in their party in places like Texas when they could have supported uh, their opposition who who were pro-choice. So I just think the Democratic Party is just not that aligned in in, in the principles of, of its voters. I think that's the real truth. Mm-hmm. And Adam, do you think that the, um, the critique that Eliami had of the right that they, you know, love to talk up free speech when it's in their interest, but they're not necessarily, de- they don't really defend it when it's coming from the other side. Do you think that that's a fair critique of the right, would you say? I think most people are inconsistent. That's my <laughs> honest critique. Uh, it doesn't matter what political side you're on. Um, you know, if we want to shape some something in our direction, we can, we can uh, find some way to say, uh, well, they do this and we do that, you know. So I, I think a lot of people are inconsistent when it comes to the freedom of speech um, or even bodily autonomy. You know, that's the other thing that we like to talk about. Um, personally, I, I know that the right to protest uh, is something that we legally are able to do as long as it's peaceful. I personally, uh, no matter which side it is, I feel uncomfortable about going to people's homes and going and following them to personal events. Uh, I just don't feel comfortable with it. I wouldn't. Par- I wouldn't advocate for that, um, but I understand it's within people's rights to do. Um, so, yeah, that's that's basically my stance on that. Well, Olaimi, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll be back with more Rising right after this. New York Governor Kathy Hochul has signed legislation that will require gun owners in the state who apply for a concealed carry permit to register their current and former social media accounts from the last three years. But it doesn't specify if they will be required to provide access to private accounts as well. The law is expected to begin starting in September. My colleague at Reason, associate editor of that magazine, Liz Wolf, is back to discuss this policy. Thanks for joining us, Liz. Thanks for having me. And my expectation is that this will uh, horrify you just as it horrifies me. (laughs) And look, I I understand, uh, well, I understand it. I don't agree with it. There's a lot of, particularly from the New York governor, of complaining and, and blaming social media in uh, in the wake of the Buffalo shooting and et cetera. That's a thing politicians often go to say, oh, well, you know, what can we blame other than just like the shooter, right? Oh, well, maybe it was social media in the same way it was violent video games and it was comic books or it was Satanism or whatever it is. Now it's social media. And fair enough, you often find I- extremist, you can find extremist content on social media. And sometimes you find that there were certain warning signs, but, uh, you know, what do you make of a measure to, like, broadly force people to give up some of their privacy and their civil liberties just to exercise their Second Amendment rights? Well, your Second Amendment rights should not be contingent on how you exercise your First Amendment rights. To me, this is quite obvious. Apparently, to Governor Hochul, it's not. Um, 
I think it's really concerning. What we see in the cases of Buffalo and in the cases of the Highland Park shooting is a failure of red flag laws that are already on the books to actually work as intended. The fact that politicians like Hochul are now in the business of passing a bunch of new laws, as opposed to actually uh, examining why the existing laws failed, to me indicates a total unseriousness. It indicates virtue signaling. It indicates that they want to get reelected or want to have future careers in politics, but it does not actually do very much to solve this problem. And I'm frankly worried that this measure doesn't even pass constitutional muster. How would this work? The places where we see these shooters talking about their motives uh, and, and giving warning signs of their plans, we see them on 4chan, we see them on Reddit. These are anonymous accounts that they would not voluntarily turn over. So I think whoever crafted this proposal has thought about it for about five seconds. <laughs> right. Give it, you're handing over your LinkedIn account. It's not really gonna <laughs> make much difference, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, all right. So here, here I, I realize I'm outnumbered by blonde libertarians, but um, <laughs> here's going to be my uh, my my sort of counter proposal or my question, I guess, for you, Liz, and for you, Robbie. You know, with abortion, it's very clear, I think, to most conservatives that the thing that makes abortion different from other constitutional rights is that there's a third party involved, right? There's a mm -hmm. baby, a fetus, right? There's a life another life there that has to be taken into account. It's not just about the woman. It's not just about the mother. And to me, I don't understand how that can't be applied as well to the Second Amendment to say, look, you have a right to own a gun, um, but there, guns can kill people. There is another life potentially involved and many other lives potentially involved in the case of mass shooters. And we do know that they leave these sort of social media trails. So on the one hand, I do hear the First Amendment argument, but on the other hand, you know, we've understood that with Roe, you know, because there is that tension, there is another life, but there is the woman's right to her bodily autonomy. We've decided that the best way to handle that tension between two competing sets of rights is to give it back to the states. And so to me, I don't understand why we couldn't say the same thing about this. Look, we're giving it back to the states. They should get to make their decisions. And yes, you have a constitutional right to own a firearm, but individual states can say because there is potentially another life involved, we feel that it is okay to put conditions on that. And one of those conditions should be, you know, we're going to look at this from the point of view of, are there any red flags on your social media? My thought with that is that we do prosecute things when another life is taken, when another life is involved. Uh, and that's sort of the point at which our laws uh, become you know, enforced here. But in terms of your actual ability to own a gun or to carry it uh, nonviolently without hurting another person, to me, allowing the state to intervene and to step in there is a bridge too far. I, I understand what you're saying though, of like this is, we, we legitimately do have a massive gun violence problem in this country. And I think it feels uh, highly disturbing and unsettling that we seem to try to tackle it in all different states. And we want them to work like laboratories of democracy, right? We want different states to experiment with different mm -hmm. laws to attempt to solve this really, really severe problem. The thing I keep coming back to is that we have existing laws on the books that we're not actually examining why they don't work. And then we even have situations like the Ovalde shooting, which was absolutely tragic, where that police department did not cover themselves in glory. And what I really want is for them to be held accountable. And I really fear that that's not what's going to happen. So I see yeah. there being so many different steps that we could all agree on that we could do first to attempt to crack down on gun violence. Yeah, that would be my response uh, to, to your comment and question, Bacha. Look, I, I, I try to be a reasonable person. If, if 
giving over your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever else account it is when you're trying to get a gun, would if that turned out to lead to some vast reduction in uh, in shootings or in mass shootings, then uh, you know what? I might be say, okay, that's a fine compromise, setting aside the potential legal issues, which I, I, I think might actually doom it anyway. But if we're just to ignore that, okay. But what I see in so many of these cases is w- warning signs that were noticed by law enforcement, and then there was just no follow-up whatsoever. So my expectation would just be more of that. I mean, how many... Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it sickens you to read of all the times that the police were called to the house in the cases of you know these various people, Salvador Ramos, the Uvalde shooter, um, other the Parkland shooter, right? He was known to 18 different law enforcement agencies. He'd been reported to the FBI. They said, this guy's a mass shooter in the making. Please do something. No one did. So I would expect it more of that. Uh, it, it, police, what the police don't do? I mean, they, they don't take this stuff seriously enough in the cases where it has turned into mass shootings. And I'm sure they can make arguments like, well, we're swamped, or you know, we 199 out of 100 times it turns out to be nothing. So whatever. But it's just like they're already doing that, and then just not following up on it is what is what I would think. We also see this huge problem, which is where social media is always the scapegoat. And I'm sympathetic, like you, Robbie, I'm sympathetic to you if we have really good data that indicates that, okay, maybe certain solutions follow. But YouTube, for example, changed their algorithm back in 2019 and actually cured a lot of the issues with what's termed basically far-right extremist rabbit holes. I did a little bit of reporting on this back three months ago, and there's some really interesting new research that has been coming out that basically indicates that it's not just these random unsuspecting people who are being drawn by the algorithms to far-right extremist content on YouTube, but rather that these people are already searching for it in the first place, and then the YouTube algorithm predictably feeds them more of that content. But I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about how these rabbit holes work. And then something I know you focused on a ton, Batya, is there's a media malpractice component to all of this, where we pay a lot of attention to the high-profile shootings in Highland Park, Illinois, a very wealthy suburb, and yet for some reason we ignore the fact that five people were shot Fourth of July weekend on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, if we actually want to be serious about tackling gun violence in this country, we need to not just pay attention to the really sensationalist high-profile shootings or just when rich people are shot. Poor people right. being shot is also a huge problem. All of these lives have inherent dignity and value, and it's really disturbing to me that a lot of inner-city violence is ignored because we're focusing on these really high-profile mass shootings when we need to be finding solutions to all of this. No, 100%. It was actually 80 people were shot on the south side and six killed. The youngest eight years old and the oldest 85 years old. And if you try to go into the media and find these people's names, you won't even find their names in the media. So I totally agree with you. You know, we know that one in five gun violence victims in America are black boys and men between the ages of five and 24. We know that black people represent 54% of gun violence victims, but they're only 13% of Americans, right? We know who the massive violent crime wave is targeting and who gets ignored by the media in the conversation. I totally agree with you about where the focus is. At the same time, you know, to stop one mass shooter in a school, Uh it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I love what you both said that, you know, if there is data out there showing that this could actually impact it, you would both be open to it. Like, that's the right approach to everything, right? So yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Well, and it's a frustrating, because it's a very frustrating, it's horrifying. I mean, nobody wants to watch 
more of these more of these things happen. I you know I do worry, and, and maybe Liz, you want to speak to this the kind of broader philosophical idea that is uh, you know th- that underpins some of this. That okay to exercise a right. Well, you have to, you know, tell the government more about you and what your views are and what you share online. And, and you know, how well, could that be extended to, well, you need to express that before you're going to buy a home or before you're going to vote or before you're in a kind of like social credit sort of way that, that you know, some of our kind of geopolitical rivals have, have moved toward. And I think that that uh, is rightly distrusted and not desired by a lot of Americans of all political stripes. Exactly. I mean, this law talks about how once you do turn over your social media accounts, uh, law enforcement officials or bureaucrats will evaluate your character based off of the content of those social media accounts. Uh, Okay, I don't really want agents of the state, agents of the government to be determining my character or attempting to evaluate it. And I'm not even sure what criteria they would be using anyways. Uh, So I think there's this problem, and we see this with a ton of legislation being written right now. This has been a problem for many, many years where this is terribly uh, ill-defined. And I, for one, am very worried about uh, the expectation being by the state that in order to exercise some rights, you need to allow certain intrusions and you need to allow them to attempt to evaluate your character or to do deep dives into the way you exercise other rights. That's just not how our constitutional rights work. And I really don't think any of this would pass legal muster. So Hochul's really uh, not really doing herself a service. She's doing herself a disservice by crafting such a clumsy piece of legislation. Mm. Well, Liz, we really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we'll be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. So 64% of all Democratic voters and fully 94% of Democratic voters under 30 years old prefer their party nominate someone other than Joe Biden for president in 2024. That's according to new polling from the New York Times and Siena College. Of respondents who want to see Biden ousted as leader of the party, 33% said that the president's age is the deciding factor, while 32% said that it's his job performance. The Times' Peter Baker reported this weekend that while White House aides insist no special accommodations are made for the 79-year-old commander-in-chief, some officials quietly watch out for him. Quote, he often shuffles when he walks and aides worry he will trip on a wire. He stumbles over words during public events and they hold their breath to see if he makes it to the end without a gaffe. Times later faced backlash on Twitter for reporting that some experts, in quotes, that's how it appeared in the story, put the president in a category of superagers who remain unusually fit as they advance in years, which I made fun of that on Twitter. Like, they're, they're experts again. Who are these experts? It wasn't really explained in the story <laughs> who think he's a superager. Where's their evidence that he belongs in that category? And I don't really, well, I, if they're looking out 80, for him tripping, that's good. totally fine. The question is if he's, if he's mentally still there. Yeah, and that's right. And that's right. Fine, it's right. fine to, yeah, okay. I trip. Yeah. Everybody trip. It's fine. That's not a problem. It's does he know what's going on? Can he communicate what's going on effectively? That's what we're worried about. I think for 80, he does seem fairly fit, you know, mm-hmm. as a, sure. but physically, but uh, mentally, for sure. There's, he's, he's definitely 
uh, missing some. But it, but interesting that they want to replace it. So Democrat voters, particularly the young ones. Now, I was just thinking this last night. I was I was just browsing around on the news, looking around, and I noticed something. I noticed that Pete Buttigieg's name continues to pop up in these news outlets over and over and over again. And it, it, last night I was thinking, this is they're doing it. They're grooming us. They're trying to get us ready to replace Biden with Buttigieg. Here it is. I, I really think the party is saying they wanted Kamala. They were hoping for Kamala. That's why they made her vice president. That's why they also gave Buttigieg, the only other candidate, a slot in the cabinet. It was very clear those were their two favorites. That's actually where they shifted resources when they didn't think they originally gave him to Kamala, actually, all of the main big Democratic donor, uh, the big Democrat strategists went to Kamala. When her campaign fell, they shifted him actually to Buttigieg. Then Biden ended up doing well. And they, oh, OK, OK, Biden's got this in the bag now, turns out, and, you know, after all. So I really think, though, that they are they were hoping for Kamala. That's not happening. Her approval ratings are worse than his than Biden's. Buttigieg is the guy. They're going to put, mark my words right now, I'm willing to make a bet. Buttigieg ends mm. up being the nominee. You're, you really want to uh, bet that? Yes. Yeah. I'm willing, okay, we I'm we willing can to bet, bet it right now. He will not be the nominee. I, I, think, I think Buttigieg or, okay, okay, let me modify. Give me, give me the ability to modify. Buttigieg okay. will be at least vice president. And as soon as Biden no. is president, they'll then uh, have him step down and Buttigieg takes over within a year of his second term. I'm yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem is, is like the Democratic bench seems not only like short, it seems non-existent. It's, mm -hmm. it's very hard to think like who could even step up. I mean, clearly Newsom is trying to put himself forward as the like anti-Ron DeSantis, which suggests like he sees himself perhaps in a role in 2024. Um, you know, on the age question, I will say. I look at someone like Nancy Pelosi, who is still, I think, as sharp as ever, still, you know, the most powerful, maybe even the smartest person in any room she's in. And I don't say that as a fan of hers. I'm a big critic of Pelosi's, but she's older than Biden and not show. I don't think she's showing her age in any way. I really don't think it's about race, uh, about age. I totally agree with you guys that this has much more to do with competence. But to me, the, the problems with the Biden presidency are not problems of age. They're problems of values right. and problems mm -hmm. of, um, you know, who you care about, who you're listening to. You know, he he went into office promising he was not listening to Twitter, and now he is ruling like he is the ruler of Twitter and very cognizant of his far left flank, um, very unwilling to compromise or speak in a way that appeals to the vast middle. There are so many ways in which he's waging this war on the middle class, you know, the price of gas and, and, and refusing to allow for, you know, drilling on federal lands and refusing to um, cater to or speak to or address the two huge concerns that average Americans have, which is inflation and gas on the one hand and violent crime on the other. These are mistakes that I think if any Democrat were in office would be mistakes they'd be making at this moment in time, thinking about where the party is and who they're speaking to and who they see as their base. So I'm not sure that age is even the problem mm -hmm. here. Like if, 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 if Joe Biden were 10 years younger, I believe he would be making many, if not, uh, yeah. you know, More. all of the same decisions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It, so, you know, yeah. you're so right, because it's an issue of competence. And that was supposed to be the promise of Biden. You know, you're sick of tr everybody, <laughs> except his most rabid fans, 
fans sick to death of having to hear about politics constantly because of Trump. And then thing, now while things economically were going very well during the early years of the Trump administration, then you had the pandemic, things were bad. The promise of Biden was getting back to normal, getting things under control. And now things are worse than ever economically on so many fronts. It's a competency issue. And I don't think anyone believes that competency issue would be better addressed by Kamala Harris. Uh, the problem with Buttigieg for me, and look, I don't have, I know there's a lot, probably a lot of our viewers, I think, really don't dislike Buttigieg or, or perceive that he's even more of like a neoliberal centrist type person. He's not a, you know, he's not a progressive left type person. I, I don't care about that. So I, I would be absolutely open to a, a Pete Buttigieg, but he is currently presiding over a massive disaster. The mm -hmm. air tra transportation uh, the air travel th thing is is a huge problem. It is so screwed up. He is not projecting confidence or an ability to address that whatsoever. Um, I don't know if they thought they were giving him an easy job that was going to like prime him for a more uh, more important uh, position or, or greater role of prominence in 2024, 2028. But he is he is totally blowing it, and I don't. I, I think he projects even less competence if that's possible, given how effed up uh, that situation is right now. So it's but pretty None of that matters to the Democratic Party. That hasn't yeah. ever mattered. They have total uh, disdain for their own voters. They don't respect their voters. They don't listen to the voters. And they haven't for a really, really long time. I mean, you could go back into the 60s where they just, the Democratic Party acts like kingmakers. And that is what they're doing with, that's what they tried with Kamala Harris. And they're going to try, and they're, they had to, they're having to pivot from her because they're saying that doesn't work. And they're going to do it to Pete Buttigieg. They don't care about what the voters think. I mean, that's why they're not caring about Biden's competency. And they're making it an age issue so that they can just swap him out with somebody like Buttigieg and say, oh, here's a young Biden for you, mm -hmm. essentially. And, and he caters a bit, you know, they're thinking Buttigieg is good maybe for the woke crowd the same way Kamala Harris was because of his sexual orientation. And he's, you know, he's a family man with kids and so they're they're gonna say oh this is the new america uh and so buddha judges the guy they don't care about what the voters actually want or what the voters are actually thinking that's why they're ignoring the problems within the administration the policy problems of the of democrats in general they're not paying attention to any of that so all of that is just over their heads they don't care uh they're they're focused on one thing and one thing only remaining in power at all costs and it doesn't need they don't need to have policies except more war like usual and continuing to line the pockets of their big donors, the corporate masters that they're beholden to. That's what's you know, so that's the Democratic Party for you. So they don't care. So they don't care. Buttigieg is the guy. I'm telling you, Robbie, I'm willing to make the bet. I, I, I predict <laughs> uh, Biden Harris ticket in 2024. I'll take the safe bet uh, because it no one nobody they can't force him. I don't think they can force him from the ticket, and no one ever gives up power, like, ever. He would have to, unless he died. I don't know. What do you think, Vatya? Um, I do think it's possible that he will not run in 2024, um, but I, I don't know that I would put my money on Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. All right. I, yeah, I feel an actual bet brewing, so we might we might need to hash this out. Um, we'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Kim, what's on your radar? 
Well, you may have seen Sri Lanka. The island nation just off the coast of India is in total mayhem and collapse. Thousands upon thousands of protesters swarmed the presidential palace and the residences of both the president and their prime minister. They breached the buildings over the weekend and have forced the leaders of the government to resign. Now the country is in political limbo and it's unclear when it could calm down and level out. Now you might think it's a small island far away and doesn't matter to us here in the United States, but Sri Lanka is a cautionary tale. What's happening there could be a foreshadowing of what's in store for us if we don't take heed and learn some lessons. So what's happening? Well, the country is out of fuel and experiencing extreme shortages of food and medicines. On top of this, the country has no money to buy imports to supply its people with these basic necessities. The country is bankrupt. It has too much debt, not enough money to pay it down. And obviously when people can't put food on the table, gas in the car to get to work, school has been canceled because people can't afford to get gas to get their kids to school and people can't get their medicines, they get angry. The protesters stormed the buildings, demanded their government resign, and actually the protesters are still in the buildings as we speak, refusing to leave until there's a transfer of power. Many have never seen such opulence and wealth and are treating their time occupying the buildings like a vacation. They're sleeping on the comfortable furniture, frolicking in the pool, eating the food in the kitchen. Now there are armed guards outside of the buildings, but at this point they're just letting people come and go. Now much like our government here in the United States, Sri Lanka's government is filled with rich people. As the regular people suffer daily trying to get the basic things they needed, their politicians were essentially eating $15 pints of ice cream. Inflation has hit the nation so hard that basically the only people who can afford what little there is of food, gas, and medicine are those who can pay the exorbitant prices. Basically, only the rich survive. Now, what caused this? Well, some are pointing the finger at China and claiming that Sri Lanka fell into a China debt trap. Recently, China has helped fund some infrastructure projects as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. They funded buildings like an airport, a conference center, and a district meant to be a financial hub. But China only holds 10% of Sri Lanka's debt. That's the same as the debt held by Japan. The Asian Development Bank, which is run primarily by Japan and the United States, as well as several other Western nations, holds 13% of Sri Lanka's debt. But the majority is held by investment firms such as BlackRock and Ashmore, who hold 30%. So if anyone is holding Sri Lanka in a vice grip, it's these private investment corporations. But the debt is only part of the problem. In April of last year, Sri Lanka banned chemical fertilizer that 90% of farmers relied on. Farmers protested and asked the government to work with them on slowly improving farming practices to be more environmentally friendly rather than implementing harsh bans. But the government was more interested in maintaining a high ESG score with its creditors like BlackRock. Now that's the social credit scoring system now used by investors to determine how socially aware and environmentally friendly a company, or in this case, a country is. Now Sri Lanka, reliant on those foreign creditors, didn't feel it could afford a low rating and continued the ban. As a result, food production dropped drastically with farmers expecting crop losses of 85%. The country had to begin spending money on importing food when it was previously self-sufficient. On top of this, one of its main exports, tea, saw a drop in production of 25% to 50%, which meant drastically less money coming in for the country. With so much money needing to be spent now on food imports and less money coming in for exports, mixed with the pandemic causing a depressed economy, the government realized they were in a bad place and reversed the ban on chemical fertilizer in November of 2021. But unfortunately, 
it was too late. The crop losses had already hit and reversing them takes time. Add global inflation and high oil prices, especially the first half of this year, and Sri Lanka spiraled. There's simply no way the country can afford the extraordinarily high prices for oil, the added importing of food that's also experiencing inflated prices because of a global food shortage, as well as paying its debt. So the lesson to learn from Sri Lanka, and I just want to make this clear, is that these drastic climate policies that are being pushed by liberal elite nations that are going around to all of these, to every nation, it's not just being pushed on here in the United States on us and in Western nations, but also all around the world. Those policies are crushing farmers everywhere in the world. Sri Lanka is one example. We're seeing the same thing happen in the Netherlands, the same thing happening in India. Some of their uprisings in India are also related to climate regulations. Um, many, uh, we're seeing this in South America, all around the world. Now with the Netherlands, the protests, we're seeing the Polish rise up, the Germans rise up, the Italians rise up. And they're all saying these environmental policies that are being pushed on us are killing crops. And now we're in a massive food shortage and farmers are saying 2023 is going to be dismal. If you think the food crisis right now with inflated prices, unable to get food on the shelves, if you think it's bad right now, 2023 is going to be even worse. And they're now saying that, you know, Sri Lanka is just one example now and many are to follow so this is a very scary thing now look the environment's important i agree we need to do what we can to protect the environment but at the expense of what why are we going after farmers why is that the why is that the group we go after and we say you can't have this nitrogen or these or, or chemical for all of these various different things that they're going out like indian farmers are going after controlled burns why are we going after them why not we why don't we start with first banning i don't know private jets how about we start there Right. Why are we going after our food supply? This is this is something I think everybody should be paying attention to. This is our food, guys. This is going to be really bad. This isn't just something luxury like, you know, even your car is more luxury than food. I mean, you need food every day. And now we're facing some serious dire issues. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole problem with the a contingent of the environmental activist movement um, ex at demanding that people sacrifice now for some distant future is just never is is not a good political strategy. It creates tremendous frustration and not asking people to make small sacrifices, but major sacrifices that are killing people's way of life and that are that are going to impoverish people. So getting out of poverty. You know, most I mean, throughout most of human history, right? Most of human society, most people lived in incredible poverty, and it's only in the last what, like, 200 years, where we now have a significant—not everyone, but a significant portion of the global population not living in crippling poverty. It's it's historically unprecedented. It's not it's not natural. The natural state is living in horrible poverty. So we have to be really careful not to get ahead of ourselves and have these policies that that um, that shut off our productive capabilities and plunge us back into some dark ages in order to avoid some cataclysm in the future. We could have a cataclysm right now. Yeah, I, I can't help but notice that, you know, left wing activism used to be like done by and on behalf of the little guy, right? The lower classes, the person who didn't have a voice, right? Activists used to show up and elevate those people, right? Like elevate their voices, get them a platform. Today, left-wing activism is done, you know, top down by elites 
penalizing the working class and the poor, right? It's these vanity morals that elites who don't actually end up having to pay the price for them end up imposing the price, the burden of their vanity onto the poor and the working class that they used to defend, that they used to stand up for, that they used to see as, you know, the people who need them. And it's just such an amazing, amazing reversal in terms of like how you think about what is left versus right in terms of how you think about the goals, you know, and environmentalism, it's just such a great example of that. I'm with you, Kim, like, yes, the climate change is real, the climate is getting warmer, I am totally not opposed to us having reasonable ways of mitigating that, but why are all the ways that are currently on the table for mitigating climate change being given as a burden to the people who can least afford to carry it and flattering the egos of the people who can like most afford to carry it, right? I'm totally with you. Well, and that's what they do. I mean, what's happening, and look, I, 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 that's where my background in any activism has been environmental activism. I even wrote an anti-deforestation or proposed anti-deforestation legislation at one point. I mean, that's where, you know, I've always been that way. But but I, it's reached a point now where it's like, look, you can't tell somebody, and, and this is the, the debate we've been having since Donald Trump became president, and it was about the coal miners, right? And saying, well, you're just gonna have to learn to code, right, or, or pivot. Um, And that was something that, you know, to say to these people that are barely making ends meet, they're not the wealthy group in America. And to say to them, I'm I'm sorry, you're just going to have to starve. But the environment's the environment and we have to do what it takes. And here we are, you know, sitting in our nice, fancy places, eating food, we can afford it. And then turning, you know, liberal elites and then turning around and saying to them and neoliberal elites, I should even qualify this more, turning around and saying to people, you're just going to have to starve for the rest of us because we're saving the planet. It, it is completely blind to the reality. And Sri Lanka now is a showcasing of what happens when you implement those policies and then you do force people to starve. The country can't really starve its people. So it had to use its money, what little it had to buy food. Then it didn't have the money to buy oil. And then when oil prices went up and when inflation went up, the country really couldn't afford anything. And it was already in debt, which every country is. And so it went under, it took only that. It really stemmed back to COVID lockdown policies, which again were neoliberal policies, COVID lockdown policies. Everybody was struggling out of that. I don't know why right now, everybody decides to do moral posturing around the world and in the Western world anyway, and says, well, now we have to send all this money to Ukraine. We have to put up with high gas prices because, oh, you know, uh, we're at war apparently somehow now with Russia. You know, why are we why are we saying now's the time to do this? We just came out of a pandemic. We need to rebuild. And now they're saying, oh, but no, we're going to continue marching forward with all of these different um, moral posturing positions. And it's causing absolute economic ruin. So, look, Sri Lanka is a cautionary tale. There's a lot also going on with Sri Lanka that I could get into. You know, there's rumblings of color revolution um, of that. This was more planted because the government was was cozying up more to China. And so there was maybe some inside, you know, there's rumblings of protests are not always the protests that you think the protests are, like who starts the protests, where do they begin? But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter at this point, it doesn't matter where people sit on any political spectrum or what they think in Sri Lanka, they're all protesting, they're all starving, they're all needing basics and they can't get it. So they're all mad and it doesn't matter anymore why, you know, any of that, they're they're angry and and that is where we're headed. And protests can 
can produce bad results. They can be, they can go awry. Yeah. They can be captured. They can have violence result from them. But that it should be incumbent on smart thinking authorities, governments, to you know to listen to the to the laments of the people and not pursue these destructive policies that get them in the situations. So yeah, but we got to be careful, guys. I mean, we're look with the skyrocketing inflation. Food price, food shortages, more food shortages coming. Uh, the the future is looking pretty. I, I mean, we need to be really paying more attention to the food supply problem that we're seeing around the world. So, well, thank you, Kim. We'll have more rising in just a minute. 4chan users allegedly hacked Hunter Biden's iCloud iCloud over the weekend, and loads of his data hit the internet showing videos of him in the depths of his addiction and what looks to be foreign prostitutes. Now, if you Google for the data, you might have a hard time finding the story because Google's search engine won't show you any results. Instead, they show you this sign that says, it looks like results are changing quickly, adding that it can sometimes take time for reliable sources to publish information. So they're oh, really not letting you... <laughs> yeah, I, I tried the search myself. I could not. It was to say, yeah, I was blocked from getting results from. I mean, you get some here and there, uh, maybe like on Twitter, for example. But that's you don't get much. They're they're definitely filtering results when it comes to this beyond mm. filtering. Mm. So, yeah. um, um, OK, I think you guys are going to disagree with me about this, but. I think um, the, I, I have sort of I don't think I have much of a problem with that because, you know, so so to the extent that Hunter Biden is an extension of his dad and presents us a, a potential um, national security threat because there are embarrassing things about him that our enemies could get their hands on and use to, to, to blackmail Joe Biden. To that extent, it is in the public interest to release this personal embarrassing data, right? Um, to the extent that he is himself a private citizen and a deeply flawed person who has a lot of this very embarrassing history, you know, to that extent, you know, I think it's less justifiable. So this is to me represents sort of the best of both worlds to where like, you know, in a way like his privacy is sort of still being protected by big tech by saying, you know, this is going to be available, but not easily available, which means that it can't be used to blackmail Joe Biden because it's already out there. But at the same time, Time as a private citizen, we aren't all being constantly bombarded with these like very, very gross pictures and videos of him in very, very compromising situations that really are none of our business when they right. have nothing to do with. What do you guys make of that yeah, argument? You know, Bacha, I do not totally disagree with you at all. <laughs> it, it, this is, uh, well, and I, I've said on this show that w one of the very few, and we, you and I disagree, I think, a lot on what sort of policies we want to see to address some of the deficiencies that we do agree exist on social media. I think we agree on a lot of the problems, would disagree on, on what should be done. But I have said that I think there should be stronger criminalization of of what is clearly like revenge porn, essentially. He, and he is having his like private videos and photos shared against his will, which is something that in some cases is a crime, I think should be more of a crime. But the issue here is that, well, it's not just a private city. It's, you know, it's a it's a person in the public interest. So there there has to be some way to talk about it and have the public be aware of it to the extent it, that it may be uh, you know, implies some kind of criminal behavior, and we're you know we're still trying to figure out. Uh, and if it's his own private criminal behavior, even that isn't necessarily of public significance. But we're 
you know, we want to know what Joe Biden knew, you know, how connected he was to it. So it is kind of murky and difficult um, to deal with. And I, I, you know, I always tell people that so in Europe has gone about all these things in a very, not specifically Hunter Biden stuff, but how to handle tech privacy stuff where they default to privacy. We, we default to kind of free expression mm-hmm. and free speech. And I think mostly that's the better impulse. But in a couple places, I would prefer privacy. And Europe is so much more about privacy. You can, you know, it's a, it's a law that you can petition Google to delete mm-hmm. results for your name that you don't like. Yeah. And Google ends up granting about half of those and that's 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 a law on the books in, in Europe so it's a it's a very different approach what do you think Kim it's really tricky because yeah. you know uh, I do think that like for example with with Julian Assange right so this is the case that would come up in my mind is this accusation of hacked material and that hacked material then being published and then there's protections on that published material uh, we even saw this with the Pentagon Papers, right? There's so, however, if, even if you procure the documents illegally, it is still in the public interest to see those documents, and or photos or whatever it might be. And so, therefore, you know, it, it, the the public mm-hmm. has the right to see it, even though you could still go to jail yourself if you're the one who did the hacking. If they can find you, now I don't think that was Julian Assange in that particular case, but somebody found, somebody got in and got the documents. Same thing with this one, right? Somebody potentially, if this is actually Hunter Biden's iCloud data, it looks to be uh, uh, legitimate. But a lot of you, but you, then you don't know. You know, you kind of. I've I've looked through a bit of it. You have to be kind of skeptical. You don't know how much stuff is photoshopped in, what yeah. people have changed and added to it. You know, how yes. much of it is real, how much of it is fake. That's where it gets really, really murky. Totally. Um, and so, you know, th- I definitely agree about the privacy thing. I also agree that you know, if if uh, you, if your phone is hacked and your private videos or images that maybe you share with your spouse, for example, are now leaked to the world. I mean, wasn't Pam Anderson, didn't she have that with the Tommy Lee video? And that wasn't, they didn't they get robbed and somebody got the, the tape and then oh, wow. published? I think that I, I'm not 100%. That, I think it was that a robbery in, the, in one of these cases. I mean, there, this has happened, you know, like 80 times to various yeah. celebrities now. And there was a robbery. I'm, I'm not sure if that time was the robbery. It might have been. But uh, it might is, have been, uh, but right. But some, there's, yeah. you know, instances of this happening and that material is still out there for people to see. So I, you know, it's, it's, I think, but it's obviously theft, right? You're burglarizing, right. essentially, you're, you're breaking into somebody's personal belongings. And then in this particular instance, when it comes to data, you're putting the data out there for the world to see. And that is almost like going and robbing someone's home and then auctioning off all of their things. Uh, on the internet, and then what kind of recourse does the person have when they find those items and say, hey, that belongs to me? And it used to be the case, and, and you can probably speak to this, Bacha, it, you know, it used to be the case when there was more trust in the mainstream media that you could, right, you could have something like this occur, or you know, someone would get surreptitious information, then they would bring it to a New York Times or a Washington Post, and then those people, you know, would, using their expertise, would vet it, would find out, you know, how well is this in the public interest, what part of this is in the public interest, and then maybe summarize for you what it is without just all the unfiltered information being out there. But now we no longer have that justifiably. We don't necessarily trust those institutions to give us the pertinent information to not shield and right. do those kinds of things, which is a, which is an issue we deal with. 
I think that yeah, is 100% right, Robbie. Yeah, I mean, if you think about, for example, how the media treated the Steele dossier, right, and the mm -hmm. whole concept of the P-tape, right, which they couldn't mm -hmm. get enough of when it was totally unverified, as opposed to how the liberal media and social media treated Hunter Biden's laptop before um, the, the election, a time at which it was 100% in the public interest to know, you know, for example, what the New York Post reported, right, which now they're sort of being proven again and again to be, you know, to have been so prescient. But I totally agree with you, Robbie. You know, there's at that point, social media um, censoring a story in a, a legacy media outlet that had been vetted by actual journalists. Right. That is so different than saying, you know, actually, this data drop full of personal information that nobody has gone through, that nobody has vetted. We're just going to sort of ease up on the search results a little bit. You know, again, yeah. I agree with both of you. It is murky. And I am sort of in favor of like the average citizen being able to go through it and make their own mind up. But I, I like you, Robbie, I lament the absence of um, a credible media that could be doing that job for us. Yeah, that's that's the difference between now and back then. And it's just uh, it's just a problem, right. huge problem. All right. Well, that was a great discussion. Uh, tomorrow on Rising, we'll also talk about a one source story concerning a 10 year old needing an abortion that went viral. And there's been some fact checking of that. And it's maybe a little bit murkier uh, than people thought. And I had such a good time here with you all. Thank you so much for having me. Tomorrow you will be joined by Brianna Joy Gray, which I'm sure is going to be amazing as well. All right, guys. Well, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, so be sure to check that out. And it was so great to have you here today, Batya. Thank so you. Great. It was so well, great to be here with you all. Absolutely. We'll see everybody tomorrow. See you tomorrow. <laughs> Bye-bye.